If you will, open up in your copy of God's Word to uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, technically, the letter to the Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians. Chapter 1. Our, our focus today is going to be verse 22 and 23. And this is part 2 of a message where we're kind of focusing in on the section that is verse 20 through 23. But those verses are a part of a little bit larger section that runs from chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. And so I want to read again that whole passage for us. I say again because we've read it for a couple of weeks, uh, but we want to make sure we take the couple of verses that we're going to study today in their broader context. And so if you will direct your eyes to chapter 1, verse 15 of Ephesians, uh, I'm going to read. You follow along in your copy of God's word. This is the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. The title of our message again is Meditating Upon Supernatural Power. And we're going to focus our attention specifically on verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. When I was a kid, there was this group of guys who would travel around and they would put on shows where they showed off how strong they were. And these were some pretty strong dudes, okay? They would show off their incredible strength. In fact, it was a Christian ministry in which they used their strong muscles as a platform for sharing the gospel. I actually think that this group may still be in existence today. I think they've gone through some changes. I don't know what their beliefs are today, and so I'm not vouching for them. I just, I just don't know, know anything about them. I'm just sharing you with you a, a memory from my childhood. And I, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I went to this little show, and I mean, they were doing all of these incredibly strong things. I remember one guy, he broke like 30 baseball, wooden baseball bats over his knee in just a matter of a couple of minutes. I mean, he was just up there snapping them one right after the other. Uh, There was one guy, and, um, and, and he was just bending like rebar in his hand, just bending steel. There, there was another guy, and, and he, um, he ran, he put a helmet on, this may show how strong they were physically, not much mentally, but he put a helmet on and ran through a block of ice. Like put his head down, like head first, like ran through this block of ice. Um, yeah, uh, he was strong physically at, at the most, probably. Anyways, I remember as a five-year-old boy watching them. I mean, they were, they were taking phone books and just ripping a phone book in half. I remember as a five-year-old boy watching that, and I was just in awe. I was like, 
I want to be able to do that, you know. I mean, that's really shooting for the stars, right? I want to be able to put a helmet on and run through a block of ice. At least they put a helmet on. Um, and uh, maybe they didn't the first time, and that's why they kept on running through blocks of ice. But these guys were big. They were strong. They were powerful. And, and they gave away these white bandanas, and only thing on the bandana was in bright red, bold lettering, the word power. So I can remember going home, and my mom may can vouch for this if she she remembers. But I remember going home, and, she, and don't ask her because she probably has pictures somewhere. Um, but I remember going home, and I, I tied that, I folded that thing up so the bandana, so the word power was displayed. I tied that thing around my head, and then I put on what we called my muscle man shirt, right? My little shirt that I would wear, and I would show off my scrawny little arms. And I'm telling you, they were scrawny, okay? And then I remember running around the house with my scrawny little arms showing through my muscle man shirt, pretending that I could do all these powerful things with this gaudy lettering of power just emblazoned across my forehead. There's something attractive about power, and not just for a five-year-old little boy. There's something that grabs our attention when it comes to power. Powerful things or powerful people, they, they, they just, they're attractive to us. They, in some way, shape, or form, when so, something happens and we're like, wow, that is incredible. Now, unfortunately, we often allow our attention to be grabbed by really small displays of power, which can then end up distracting us from the greatest display of power that the world has ever known. And that is none other than the power of Almighty God displayed through the person and work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, we have the same main idea statement as last week. As really, this is part two of verses 20 through 23. And that passage, these verses teach us this, that a deepening awareness of the power of God toward us will come as we meditate upon God's power displayed in Christ. Paul is praying that the believers would know the power of God and we know it as we meditate. We spend time thinking about how his power has been displayed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Remember, he says here that he's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's not talking about the knowledge of Paul and him, but in the knowledge of God. He wants them to grow in their knowledge of God. He wants them to grow in their knowledge of this one who has blessed them with such a great salvation. And he prays specifically that they would know what is the hope to which he has called them. What is the glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he expands this prayer into this meditation upon this immeasurable power. And in this passage, not only do we see, if you look at verse 19, that this power is immeasurable in its greatness, but we see that it is according to the working of his great might. It's an active power. And not only that, but it is a power that he, verse 20, has worked in Christ. This is a power that we can see displayed as we look to Jesus. In other words, it's not just a power that God has told us about. It is a power that God has shown us. Do you want to see the greatest power in the world? Then see Jesus. Look to Him. Do you want to know the greatest power in the world? Then, friend, know Jesus. Do you want to grow in your knowledge of the greatest power in the world, church? 
then we must meditate upon the supernatural power of God that he has displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 20 through 23, Paul gives four ways in which God has worked the immeasurable greatness of his power in Christ. And last week we looked at the first two of these four ways. Let me quickly remind you of those. First, we are to know God's power in the resurrection of Jesus. We see that in verse 20. According to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so we're to know God's power in the resurrection of Jesus. And second, we're to know God's power in the exaltation of Jesus. Notice how verse 20 continues that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so we're to know God's power in the exaltation of Jesus. Today, we want to look at the third and fourth ways Paul describes the mighty power of God in Christ. And and like last week, I want us to look at these and think about what do they mean? How do we see this in the text here? And then what difference does that make in our lives? And so let me give you the third way that we are to know the supernatural power of God in Christ. Number three, we are to know God's power, church, in the dominion of Jesus. We are to know God's power in the dominion of Jesus. Paul has pointed to the resurrection of Jesus, to the exaltation of Jesus, and now he points to the dominion of Jesus. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and he put all things under his feet. That is God, the father, putting all things under God, the son, Jesus Christ's feet. You see, it's not just that Jesus has been placed in a position of exaltation over all. It's that Jesus actually exercises his authority and supremacy over all by ruling over all. Now, in one sense, all things are under the feet of Jesus. In fact, that's what it says. You you have placed all things under his feet, right? That's what God has done. Placed all things. And so that means that he rules and reigns over everyone and everything. Those who belong to him and those who reject him, his friends and his enemies. There's a sense in which, even as followers of Christ, we are under the feet of Jesus in the sense that he is in authority over us. But this image of placing someone or something under your feet is often used to refer specifically to one's enemies. And this is what I want us to focus on for a few minutes today. To have something placed under your feet is an exercise of authority over and power over your enemy. To put your foot upon the enemy. And Paul is most likely here making a reference to the messianic prophecy found in Psalm chapter 110. What do I mean by a messianic prophecy? It's a prophecy that speaks of the coming Messiah. A prophecy that really is talking about Jesus long before he ever showed up here in physical form on this earth. And so we look back to Psalm chapter 110 and there King David prophesied of the coming Messiah in this way. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, which is a reference to God, the father speaking to the king, God, the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Now, if we were to continue reading in the rest of this psalm, Psalm 110, we would get a better understanding of what he means by until I make your enemies your footstool. In fact, let me read for you Psalm 110. He goes on and says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head, which is a sign, a signal, a symbol of victory to have one's head lifted up. He will lift up his head in victory. And so Psalm chapter 110 begins by God the Father telling God the Son that you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna reign over your enemies and I'm gonna put your enemies under your feet as a footstool. And then that language just continues with shattering kings and bringing judgment, executing judgment, filling the earth with corpses. It's a, it's a, it's a, a picture of complete domination. When Paul says then that God the Father puts all things under the feet of Jesus, one of the things it means is that He, Jesus, dominates over every evil rule and authority and power and dominion, including that wicked serpent all the way back in the Garden of Eden who continues to plague this creation of God. Remember, it was the serpent who led the first representative of humanity into rebellion against His Creator. But Genesis 3 doesn't just contain the bad news of sin, church. You know that it contains also the good news of Jesus. Remember that first gospel word spoken by God in the Garden of Eden. That glorious word of good news spoken into a creation that had been shattered by sin. In fact, it was a promise of war. And yet it's a good news promise for all who belong to the victor. We read in Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the serpent, The enemy, because you have done this, because you tempted my creation, my people made in my image to sin. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says this. God said, I will put enmity. That's another word for hatred or even war. I will put war, enmity, hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friend, that was God's promise all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right after the very first sin. It was God's promise to send a man who would make war upon the devil. Who would launch out in an attack against Satan. And this coming man would ultimately crush the head of that enemy serpent. And that's exactly who Jesus is and exactly what Jesus has done, is doing, and will one day complete. God displayed his mighty power by sending his son to the earth to be born of a woman. We just sang about this. To enter into this creation. Then to pay the penalty for sin. To rise from the dead. And then to be exalted over all. Dominating over. Subjecting to himself all things. Including every evil power. Which includes Satan himself. Brothers and sisters, this is none other than a supernatural power. And it is toward us who believe. We're going to keep going back to that verse 19. It is toward us who believe. This power is. And Jesus accomplished the supreme act of victory in his resurrection He holds the supreme place of honor in his exaltation in church. Therefore, he is able to exercise supreme dominion over all, including, praise the Lord, his enemies. 
And so, church, if we are going to grow deeper in our knowledge of God, specifically in our knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, then we must know God's power in the dominion of Jesus. Now, perhaps the dominion power of God scares you a little bit. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it ought to scare you. But even if you are a follower of Jesus, maybe it still scares you a little bit. And I think there is a a level in which that's a good thing. A holy, reverent fear of Christ our King. And yet, church, followers of Jesus, we don't have Christ our King squashing us under His foot. But we have Christ as our head. We have Christ as our head connected to us, us connected to Him in a life-giving way. This one who dominates his enemies, loves his people so much that he actually attaches us to himself in a most glorious way. And so we know God's power in the dominion of Jesus. But listen, number four, we want to know God's power in the headship of Jesus, church. We want to know God's power in the headship of Jesus, So far, Paul has shown us the display of God's power in Christ by saying that God raised him from the dead, that God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, and that God the Father put all things under his feet. But fourth, he says this, that God the Father gave him his head over all things to the church. Look at verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This final line of Paul's prayer is a statement that is loaded with theological weight and with powerful implications for the people of God. Let's start with that word head. He has been given as head over all things to the church. This word is used to signify authority. He is head over all things. The resurrected and exalted Jesus who has dominated his enemies is in a position of authority over all things. But this word head is more specifically used to signify his relationship, not merely just to all things, but specifically to the church. Jesus, who rules all things, who has been given as head over all things, has been given as head over all things to the church. This word church is literally a word meaning assembly or gathering. We'll see Paul use this word numerous times throughout uh, the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This word church means a gathering and in the context of the Bible it's a gathering of the redeemed, a gathering of believers. He is head over all things to the church. And here this word head specifically refers to him being given to us. And it is a Good and gracious gift of God, our father. God has given us Jesus who holds supremacy over all things, but given him to the church to function as the head of the church. And this means that Jesus is in a position of authority over the church church. He is our head. We are not the head. He is the head. The church answers to Jesus as a head directs a body. The church is directed by Jesus. But Jesus is not in a position of distant authority. His position of authority is marked by the closest of relationships. Notice what the church is called. The church is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. He gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. And so while Jesus holds the position of supreme authority over all things, all things are not his body. Only the church has the privilege of being his body. 
I want you to think about for, a, for a, just a moment how close the relationship is between a head and a body. How close is the relationship between a head and a body? I don't know any other way to say it except it's an inseparable relationship. Like, the head doesn't walk one way and the body walk another way. I mean, isn't there, where one goes, the other goes, right? That is an inseparable relationship. It is perhaps one of the closest kinds of relationships that, that could be described using this uh, illustration of a body and a head. And this imagery of the church as the body of Christ is one that, uh, that of the primary pictures that's used really throughout the pages of the New Testament to describe God's relationship to his people who are called the church. Paul's going to use this imagery all throughout this letter in many places. For instance, in chapter 4, Paul will speak of this head-body relationship between Christ and the church in the context of the church growing into maturity of which Christ is the standard. We're growing up into our head who is Christ in chapter 4. In chapter 5, Paul's going to use this imagery of head-body to refer to the willing submission the church shows to Christ and the loving nourishment Christ provides for the church. And then he's going to get even more practical in chapter 5 and use that as an illustration of the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. But then I want you to notice the final phrase here, in verse, uh, which is verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is perhaps the most difficult part of this passage to really understand the meaning. Um, but it seems that what Paul is saying is that Christ, the head, is filling the church with himself and that Christ who fills the church with himself is ultimately the one who fills everything. Now, I think that filling everything can kind of take us back to chapter one, verse 10, where we see that God's plan is ultimately to unite all things in Christ. And so this verse is both affirming the supremacy of Christ over all things. And yet at the same time, it's distinguishing the church as the special recipient of Christ's headship and his filling. In other words, the supreme, supernatural, mighty power of God displayed in Christ's supremacy over all things is also being displayed in his special relationship to the church. His blood-bought people who has the privilege of being joined to Christ to receive, what does the head do? Provides loving leadership, life-giving nourishment, and protecting guidance, and all the other benefits that the body receives from the head. Oh, church, think about it. To think that the supreme Lord of all has been given to hell-bound sinners to be joined to us with the closeness that exists between a head and a body so that we are transformed into heaven-bound saints. That's what Paul is talking about. And it took the mighty power of God to do that. It's nothing less than mighty, supernatural, immeasurably great power. It's nothing less than the power of God. And church, if we are going to grow in our knowledge of God, to grow deeper in our awareness of Him and who He is, which is what Paul is praying for, specifically in the area of our knowledge of the immeasurable greatness of His power, then we must know God's power in the headship of Jesus. So, We've seen four ways, church, that God has displayed his mighty power in Christ, raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. But again, remember, this is not just a power for us to read about and know information about 
This is a power that is toward us who believe. It is toward us who believe. I think back to that ridiculousness of me running around with that thing on my head with the word power and thinking I was super strong. You know, the power that I saw displayed on that stage that day from those strong and powerful guys, it, it entertained me, but it didn't change me. I left that show the same scrawny kid that I was when I got to that show. I wasn't any stronger for having watched those guys on that stage do really strong things. I was unchanged. But church, this power, this power, this power changes. It changes you and it changes me. Praise God. And so as we meditate on the power of God displayed in Christ, I want us to consider the difference, the change that it makes in the lives of those who believe. For it is a power that is toward us who believe in Christ. So what difference does this power make in our lives? Last week we looked at the difference that the resurrection power of Christ makes in our lives and the difference that the exaltation power of Christ makes in our lives. What about God's power seen in the dominion of Christ? Let's go back to that, that power seen in his dominion. How does all things having been put under the feet of Christ impact our lives? I want to give you one way real quick and then spend a little bit of time on another way. First, the dominion power of Christ, church, will lead us to live in humble service before Jesus, our king. Again, in one, in one sense, it's another reminder that Jesus has a position of authority over us. All things are under his feet. He is king and Lord over all. It's going to lead us to live in humble service before him. If, Jesus, if all things are under Jesus' feet, then Jesus is our king and we are his servants. That means Jesus gets to call the shots. Jesus gets to make the rules. Our role is to humbly serve, humbly submit to his rule and his reign. And so we could say the dominion power of Christ practically in our lives will lead us into humble service to Jesus, our king, who is the ruler of all. But I want to focus on another way. That this impacts our lives on a day to day basis. The dominion power of Christ, secondly, church, will lead us to live in victory over Satan and the temptations that he sends our way. The dominion power of Christ will lead us to live in victory over Satan and the temptations he sends our way. If, if, if you were here last week and you recall as we talked about the, the resurrection power of Christ and the exaltation power of Christ, we said that we don't have to fear Satan's accusations because in his resurrection and exaltation, Jesus is always living to make intercession for us. So when the when our accuser, Satan, accuses us, Jesus is at the right hand of the father saying, nope, I paid the price for his sin. I paid the price for her sin. You've forgiven him or her. But church, not only do we want to know that we don't have to fear Satan's accusations, I want you also to know that we also don't have to fear Satan's temptations. Because in his dominion power, Jesus is crushing the tempting power of Satan along with Satan, the tempter, under his feet. Remember, we said that God placing all things under the feet of Jesus can also be a specific reference to his dominion over his enemies. It is the enemies of God that God makes into a footstool for Jesus, according to Psalm 110. So church, because of the dominion of Jesus, we can live in victory over Satan and his temptations that come our way and come our way. They do 
on a daily basis, sometimes on a moment by moment. Sometimes it feels like on a second by second basis, those temptations come our way. But because the feet of Jesus are on the neck of Satan, Satan has no power over God's people. Now, maybe you say. That sounds good. But I sure do struggle with sin. It sure does feel like sometimes Satan has the upper hand. I mean, if Jesus is squishing Satan under his foot, how how come it feels like those temptations are so strong and so powerful in my life? Well, that's a really good question. And here is where we need to see and live out the reality of of the already but not yet nature of Christ's dominion over the enemy. When Christ paid the redemption price, when Christ rose from the dead and ascended to the highest place of exaltation in heaven. Listen, the victory over Satan has been had been won at that point. Satan was rendered powerless. The victory had been won. In one sense, the evil forces in the world are already under the feet of Jesus, as Paul says here. And he put all things under his feet. And yet, church, there is a sense in which they are still being subjected to him and will one day finally completely be subjected to him forever. We want to interpret scripture with scripture. And so if you read verse 22, it's verse 22 and you say, man, sometimes it doesn't feel like the evil one has been placed under the feet of Jesus. Well, let's let's interpret that in light of some other passages of scripture. The writer of Hebrews is speaking about the exaltation and dominion power of God in Christ. If you read this verse in context, you're going to see a lot of similar language that we see here in Ephesians one. There, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter two, verse eight, that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So God has placed everything in subjection to him the already, but not yet. We don't yet see everything in subjection to him. And then in Hebrews chapter two, that was verse eight, Hebrews chapter two, verse 12 and 13. The writer says this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And that's Hebrews. I think I told you the wrong chapter and I don't want to confuse you. So I'm going to tell you the right chapter. That's Hebrews chapter 10 and not two. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 through 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So you, you see what scripture is saying here. In one sense, the dominion of Christ over all things, over evil is has already been done. But in another sense, it is a work in progress. And yet, because Jesus has died for sin and rose from the dead and been exalted to the position of supreme authority in heaven, the dominion of Christ, that in one sense is a work in progress, is guaranteed, church, to be completed one day. And its completion is so certain that Paul can speak about the dominion of Christ in Ephesians as if it has already been completed, as if it has already happened. He says, and he put all things under his feet. You see, the battle might not be over yet, but the victory church has already been won. This is the already but not yet of the dominion of Christ. 
Say again, what does this mean for my everyday life? Church, it means that for us who have believed in Jesus, that although we still live in a struggle against Satan, we no longer live under the control of Satan. We no longer live under the power of Satan and his temptations. We struggle as the victors, for we share in the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. Later in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's going to, Paul's going to get real with us about what life looks like for a believer on a day-to-day basis. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this about the Christian life. He says that we must stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, living the Christian life, living a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called, it is a battle. It is a struggle. It is a wrestling match. And yet we wrestle, Paul says. We fight against Satan and his demons and the temptations that come our way with the power of God who has subjected and is subjecting and one day will finish subjecting all things to himself, including the evil that we wrestle against. In other words, Christian, as you battle against temptation, know that you are battling against a defeated foe who is writhing under the weight of the glory of the nail-scarred feet of Jesus, our King, who was already one. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Paul says of our resurrected Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 and 25, beautiful words. They're words that help us know that as we struggle victoriously against the enemy, we battle with the knowledge that the struggle is not eternal. For Jesus, our King, is going to one day return and He's going to banish forever Satan, His enemy, into the eternal pit of fire. No longer will Satan launch his evil attacks against God's people. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Church, this knowledge of the dominion power of God in Christ will drastically change how we battle against Satan and his temptation. Because we'll battle, not defeat it but will battle as victors. Christian, Satan cannot make you sin because you have the dominion power of Christ in you. So Christian, stop giving him credit that he does not deserve. Stop saying the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything when the dominion power of Christ is in you because Satan for sure can't make Jesus do anything. And if Jesus is in us, his power toward us who believe, he can't make us do anything. So don't give him the credit. You said the hateful word. You slammed the door. You looked at the pornography. You stole the money. You you, you cheated on the test. You refused to forgive. You you did these things. I do these things. Not because Satan made us do them, but because we chose to do them because in those moments we were not living in the dominion power of Christ. We were going back to our old father, the devil, instead of living under our heavenly father and his son, the Lord, our king. And his power who has defeated our old father, Satan. Don't say the devil made me do it. 
Don't give Satan that much credit. Let's take responsibility for our actions. And let's fight the battle against Satan and his temptations that come our way. With humble confidence that Christ is the victor and so are we if we are in Christ. Satan can tempt, but he can't force. So don't make excuses, church. Abide in Christ and let his dominion power over the enemy flow out of you as you overcome temptation. So the dominion power of Christ leads us to live in humble service to Jesus our King and leads us to live in victory over Satan and his temptations. And so do you know, church, the dominion power of God in Christ today? What about the power of the headship of Christ? What about that? Does that make any difference in our lives? How does Christ have been given his head over the, all things to the church? How does that impact our lives right now, church? Well, first, the headship of power, headship power of Christ uh, should lead us to live in thankful submission to Christ as our head. Should lead us to live in thankful submission to Christ as our head. Again, consider that relationship that the head has to the body. The head is the control center for the body. The body submits to the control of the head. What my head tells my body to do, that is what my body does. And if the head is a good head, if it hadn't run into too many blocks of ice, then everything the head tells the body to do will be good for the body. The head will lead the body in the direction of nourishment and protection. In other words, the head is going to signal to the body what direction to go to grow in health and to be protected from danger. The head's going to signal whether something is bad for us or whether something is good for us. If there's a good meal in front of us, the head's going to say, pick up a fork and eat. If there's a meal of poison in front of us, the head is going to say, stay away, go another direction. What difference does the headship power of Christ make in our lives, church? Well, as the head directs the body to act for its good and for its health and for its preservation, so does Christ direct his church. And church, Christ is a good head. As we submit to Christ, our head, we will be led away from the destructive nature of sin into the purifying holiness of God. Listen, we have direction to guide our walk. And so we walk in the direction Christ leads, not in the direction we or anyone else thinks best. We look to Him for our direction. We have nourishment, church, to sustain our walk. And so we walk in the nourishment that Christ provides through His Word, through prayer, through Christian fellowship. Christ, our head, nourishes the body. We have protection to guard our walk. And so we walk with obedient attention to the protective voice of Christ, stopping when He says stop, turning around when He says turn around, going against the flow of our peers when He says that their way is dangerous because it is a sinful way. In other words, because Jesus is our head, we walk in submission to Jesus. But it is a thankful submission, church. It's a glad-hearted submission to Christ our head because our head is our Savior who died for our sin. And so this headship power of Christ will lead us to live with thankful submission to Christ. But also the headship power of Christ will lead us to live for the praise of Christ who is our head. Church, we praise Him. For all the blessings that flow into us as a result of him filling filling us with the fullness of himself. What does it mean that the fullness of Christ is in us, the church, the body of Christ? Hear this final thing, church. And glory in it. Rejoice in it. Let it lead you to, to praise. What does it mean that Christ has filled us with his fullness? I love how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it when he was preaching this passage. He put it so simply and so, so profoundly. He said this. He said, what is true of Christ is true of us. 
Now, that's an incredible statement to make. And obviously, obviously, there's some limits to that statement. But if the head is connected to the body, then what is true of the head becomes true of the body. What is true of Christ is true of us. As the head goes, so goes the body. As Christ goes, so goes the church. If the head enjoys resurrected life, then so will the body. If the head is seated with God in the heavenly places, so will the body. And if the head has dominion over sin and Satan and death, so will the body. One of the most incredible statements in Scripture says that one day we will not only live with Christ, but God's people will reign with Christ. What is true of Christ is true of the church. And so do you know the headship power of God in Christ today? And by no, I mean, are you living in the power of God in Christ today? Are you living in victory over sin, knowing that the enemy is under the feet of Jesus? Are you living in submission to Christ, our head, allowing his life giving nourishment and his protecting guidance to guide and direct your path? Friend, the reality is that you're either part of Christ's footstool or you're a part of his body. Either you're under the authority of Jesus as his enemy or you are under the authority of Jesus as his body. A member of his resurrected people. The good news, church, is that you can go from being his enemy to being his friend. You can go from being his footstool to being a part of his body. For this powerful Jesus who died on the cross for our sin so that all who believe in him will be saved is the same one who has this power of dominion and power of headship. If you've never believed in Jesus, then you must. This power is toward us who believe. So will you believe in Christ today? Will you trust that he has done the work of salvation? Will you give your life to Him in repentance and faith? It takes the almighty power of God to save a sinner. And praise God. God has displayed His power in Christ. Sinners like you and me. Do you have Christ today? Is He the Lord and Savior of your heart? He is the power that you need to save you. And if you haven't trusted in Him, then please believe in Him. And for those who do belong to him, let's praise him, church, for his power. Let's grow in our knowledge of this power and let's allow this power to make a difference in our lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Father, I pray that they would know You. Father, I pray that You would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of You. God, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. They would know what is the hope to which You have called us. They would know what is the glorious inheritance that is Yours in the saints. They would know what is the immeasurable greatness of Your power toward us who believe. A power that is according to Your great might. That you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and when you seated him at his right hand, at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would know this immeasurably great, great power, measurably great power that is displayed as you as you put all things under the feet of Jesus and as you 
given Christ as head over all things to the church, which is your body. Fullness of Christ who fills all in all. God, help my church family to know this. Help me to know this. Help us to grow in our knowledge of this. Help us to meditate upon the supreme power that is yours displayed in Christ. God, may it change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.